0: Good morning, my name is Dave Strozeski or uh, Dave Stroz. I like the shortened version because it's, it's easier for me to remember, but the, I, I'm one of the elders here at Grace and the, in Mike's absence it's my privilege uh, to bring to you the word of God this morning which I'm very excited about and uh, what I'd like to do is if you're able to and can stand with us to uh, read the scripture together, let's turn to 1 John 4, 9-19 through 19 and read there. 1 John 4, 9-19. through 19, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Please be seated. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, we're grateful for the love that you've demonstrated to us, and we pray this morning as we look into your word that your Holy Spirit would make it alive and help us to mix it with faith that we might know you better and love you better and come to a greater understanding of of your work and love for us in our lives. We commit this time to you and thank you in Christ's name, amen. I'd like to read again verse 16 just because that's going to be the focal point where we jump off. It says this in verse 16, it says, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. John in his epistle has a strong emphasis on this idea of knowing. In fact, he, uh, more than any other New Testament epistle, uses the word know over 32 verses and many times more than once in a verse. His focus is that we might know Christ, for example, in chapter 2, verse 3. And he wants us to know the truth in chapter 2 and verse 20. He wants us to know that he abides in us in chapter 4 or 13. He wants us to know that we have eternal life in chapter 5 verse 13. He wants to know that he hears us in chapter 5 verse 15. And here in verse 16, he wants us to know, it says, that we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. A good translation for that would be even that we have come to experience and have begun to trust the love that God has for us. There are several Greek words that are translated to know in the New Testament. For example, one word is oida, and it has this idea of a comprehensive type love, an intuitive love, a perceived, I'm sorry, love, a perceived know, to know something kind of intuitively, a general sense, like I know that... Tustin Avenue runs north and south. I just know what it, it's on a map. I've seen it. I know that if I were to walk over to Charlie's piano, that I could stand on it and it would support my weight. I've never done it, but I, I know that would be the case. Contrast that with another word that's. Yeah, no. <laughs> Contrast that with another word that's translated to know, gonosco. The word gonosco has this sense of experience. It has the sense of a knowledge that is learned over time, that takes an investment, that takes an engagement. That's the word that John uses most often in his letter here. This idea of experiencing. John's writing this letter because he's trying to ward off some of the false teachers that have crept about. Some of the Gnostics who said that their learning was this transcendental knowledge that was gained by perception, by intuition, by some internal sense. John's saying, no, no, no. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. John wants to make sure that we understand that we can have fellowship with a personal God. Some of the believers were uh, in in this area, the the Roman provinces of Asia, had had their confidence shaken by some of this teaching. They weren't sure now if Jesus was truly a man, God in the flesh, come to sacrifice Himself for their sins. They weren't sure of a Christ-centered relationship with God And so John wants to write this letter using the idea of experiential knowledge to make sure that they understood that we could know for sure many of the truths that God has for us. John starts the letter, in fact, saying, we have seen, we have beheld, we've touched the word of life. And he's writing that these believers would experience Christ. Woost, in his uh, excellent uh, volume on Greek word studies, says that both of these words in verse 16, "to know and to believe," are in the perfect tense, and yet they emphasize an ongoing, completed or it's, they, uh, they emphasize an ongoing uh, response, an ongoing result. They have abiding results for the present time. What a joy that the things we can learn here have ongoing results for the present time. We often forget his love when difficult times arrives. When we're going through hard times and our faith is shaken and some of the things around us, whether it's the economy, job situation, begin to take a stranglehold on our confidence in God's love for us. John's writing so that we don't miss out on the comfort of the certainty of his love. Most everyone's here been to the Grand Canyon at least once, right? Everybody? Yeah? You can raise your hand. Has everyone been here? Okay, I thought so. Okay, good. Um, me too, several times. And, um, you know, every time we go, uh, this last time, in fact, we went, we did a package deal where we, uh, we stayed at a hotel, and it was on the south side of the canyon. We took a train ride to the canyon and then had lunch. And uh, it, was, it was pretty fun. Uh, But having been there a number of times, I really wasn't all that excited about the canyon itself. I was kind of ho-humming it. I was going to enjoy the family time together as we traveled on this train amidst the backdrop of the desert and some of the corny staff jokes. But uh, we had lunch on the south rim, and um, as we went to the edge of the canyon, and I peered out over again, and it happens every time, and it probably has with you too, I am awestruck by the jaw-dropping beauty of the canyon. And I think, wow, I'd kind of forgotten. This is unbelievable. And I think many times that's our experience as believers. That's what the believers John was writing to were struggling with. They'd kind of forgotten. They they weren't sure. And so they they were missing out a little bit. We know the love of God, right? We sing about it every Sunday, most Sundays. We read about it periodically through the week. But when tough times come, we begin to lose sight, and we forget. And sometimes we need to come back and realize, to experience, to know the jaw-dropping beauty of God's love for us. We sang Amazing Grace, and the um, second stanza says that it was grace that taught our heart to fear, and grace our fears relieve. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. If you would, if you're a believer, think back with me for a moment to that day, to that hour, to that moment when you came to Christ. Just take a minute. Who was, who was there? Where were you? What were the circumstances? You might be thinking that, well, it wasn't really all that dramatic. I, was, uh, I heard the Word and I, and I believed and uh, we kind of went on. Well, you know, that was true with a lot of the New Testament saints, including uh, Peter, James, John. They heard the Word, believed the Word, changed men. But I would, I would uh, submit that it was very dramatic. Think of this, that we were dead spiritual beings made alive at that moment. At that moment, you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. At that moment, you were ransomed back from the power of hell. You were bought back, purchased from Satan himself, adopted into the family of the Almighty. I'd say it was probably one of the most dramatic events of history, an event that in no other way do we know of angels rejoicing at any other time except for the salvation of men. Come back to today. Is there a spouse that you're having a difficult time with? Or co-workers that you're struggling with? Or friends that you just can't get along with? or issues that uh, relationally are just problematic for you. We struggle with these things. You struggle with them. I struggle with them. Because we don't keep in mind the tremendous, awesome, experiential love that God has for us that He wants us to know. He wants us to not just have our head wrapped around this idea, but as we know that Christ wants our heart. He wants to be the object and center of our attention and devotion At the uh, New Tribes Bible College, there was a poster that said the highest pinnacle of the spiritual life was not joy in unbroken broken sunshine, but absolute and undoubting trust in the love of God. The highest pinnacle of the spiritual life, absolute and undoubting trust in the love of God. Now, obviously, that's not scripture, but Paul seems to be okay with that idea. Philippians 3, he says, I count everything as rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ that I might gain him. Jesus himself said the law and the prophets were fulfilled in a love of God and a love of others. Because of this uh, awesome love that God has for us and our tendency to just forget a little bit, to have it, uh, you've seen those clarity and Clear commercials? Well, sometimes we get a little fuzzy, and we need to be clarified by the Word of God and be reminded sometimes, as Peter tells us. Because of that, there's five areas of God's love that I'd like to look at this morning. God has demonstrated His love to us by choosing us. He's demonstrated His love to us by giving to us. He demonstrated His love to us by forgiving us. He's demonstrated His love by, as He trains us. And He demonstrates His love to us as He matures us. First of all, He, he chose the elect. And while I don't want to get into a long conversation about the nuances and the doctrine of election, let me just quote D.L. Moody. He said that the elect were the whoever, who, whosoever will and the non-elect are the whosoever won't. There's a terrific joy of being chosen and there's also a little discomfort of being not chosen. How many of us have been chosen third or fourth or ninth, you know, in the sports event? And, uh, you know, it's a little, little uncomfortable. But uh, to know that we've been chosen for God's own possession, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people that he desired to call his own. If you look at 1 John 3, 1, Just page over. It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And such we are. You don't have to turn to it, but in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verses 4, starting with verse 4, Paul says this, He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us. Drop down to verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We've been chosen to the highest possible calling. The question is Are you one of the elect? Charles Spurgeon said that Christ was at the everlasting council. He can tell you whether you were chosen or not. But you cannot find out in any other way. Go and put your trust in Him. There will be no doubt about His choosing you when you have chosen Him. Secondly, God gives to us. If you turn back to 1 John 4. verses 9 and 10, we, we have to go here. This is the ultimate touchstone of uh, the greatest act of giving that we're aware of and could even be imagined. First John 4, 9 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Here's the Almighty, loving to the utmost, sending His best, and forgiving the undeserving. Giving is completely in God's character. Annie Flint wrote the song, He Giveth More Grace. And he said, His love has no limits, His grace has no measure, His power no boundary known unto men, but out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth. And giveth again. It's God's character. A couple of things in Scripture that we're given are: uh, Paul says that we're richly supplied, all things to enjoy. That we're able to. Uh, that He's able to supply abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think. And every good thing bestowed, and every perfect gift, is from above. There's a story told about. Alexander the Great, where one day a beggar was by the side of the road asking for alms. The man was poor and wretched and had no claim on the ruler at all, no right even to lift a solicitous hand, yet the emperor threw him some gold coins. And when a courtier saw that, he was astonished and said, why did you give him gold? Sir, copper would have adequately covered the beggar's needs. Alexander responded in royal fashion. He said, yes, copper coins would have suited the beggar's needs, but only gold suited Alexander's giving. God's giving is like this. He gives us the gold of things eternal. We're tempted to ask questions like, why is my child sick? Why did I just lose my job? Why did I have this family member pass away? Why did I just get into this car wreck? Why did I just get this ticket? Why, why? We ask a lot of questions. And I think it's because we confuse our desires and pleasure with God's purpose for us. God's not necessarily concerned about our comfort, but he's, thing, he's concerned about things eternal. His gold, things in Scripture that He says He gives us, are grace. He gives us perseverance and encouragement. He gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He gives us the spirit of wisdom. He's given life to the dead. We long for the copper and disdain the gold. For this, we need to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To set our mind on things above, not on the things of earth. For we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. He also demonstrates his love to us because he forgives us. I uh, I'm not a big NASCAR fan, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was watching a, a race at the Texas Motor Speedway, and um, you know I tend to come in at the last five to ten laps. That's where it gets exciting, I guess. But um, sorry, you NASCAR fans. But um, you know they were talking about qualifying, so I was looking at what it took to qualify for the race. It's pretty confusing. I thought everyone just showed up and the fastest cars ran, but there's this whole program of the fast cars plus the guys who are there week in and week out. They get some bonus points, and um, there's also some there's some kind of draw at the beginning of the race. I think where you, you choose something and then they mix all this together and uh, and you come out with the, the, the qualify those who qualified in their in their positions in the race. Uh, Pete, am I am I? I'm not even close, am I? But there is there is a lot to qualifying. And um, and you got you NASCAR guys who have this figured out. You know, I, I tip my Stetson or, or my ball cap, depending on what part of the country you're from. Um, but look at Colossians one twelve. What a great thing that in the biggest race that we run, God is the one who does the qualifying. Colossians one twelve. says that we give thanks to the Father for He has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He delivered us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. What a great thing. In the biggest race, and heaven being the winner's circle, He's done the qualifying through His Son, Jesus Christ. John Stott in... um, contemporary Christianity wrote of a uh, a woman Margarita Lasky who was a contemporary secular humanist and um, and novelist shortly before she died in 1988 she was on uh, TV and one of her comments was this she said one of the things I envy about you Christians is that you have someone to forgive you she said I have no one to forgive me she actually did but she just didn't realize it. The day of, of um, my redemption was the, the sweetest day of my life. I think on that day probably every morning. I knew that I was uh, going to hell. In fact, I thought I was going to hell that night. And I sensed strongly the, uh, the stain and the... Um, the darkness and the offense of my sin before God. And when it was brought to me that the perfect Christ came and was willingly and willingly sacrificed Himself to pay the payment for my sin, I um, surrendered and was blown away. There's a... um, Illustration that a Sunday school teacher gives. She's trying to make a point to her class. She's been talking about forgiveness. He says, "Okay, let me make sure I'm clear." She goes, "What do we need to do in order to be forgiven?" She's looking around, and one of the kids finally says, "We need to sin." (laughs) Well, we're good with that part. I mean, we have no problem. We're okay. we're, We're covered. We've done that. We meet the criteria. But his forgiveness is completely comprehensive. We often use um, in First John again because John talks about this so often. This uh, experiential understanding of God's love and grace and forgiveness. In First uh, John one nine, we uh, we use this so often to confess our sins uh, and He faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We, we use it so often as a remedy for our ongoing sin. And I think sometimes we sin so often that we get weary and we think we're going to weary God. I think this verse is actually relating to salvation. At the very beginning of the, of the book, John, before he talks to the believers, he speaks of salvation. We've been, if you're a believer in Christ, forgiven at the foot of the cross, comprehensively forever we do confess our sins before God but we do it with the full knowledge that his forgiveness has already been comprehensive and complete at the cross what a joy then because we can go before him with confidence knowing that he's a loving father and his desire is to continue to transform us into the likeness of Christ likewise there's no condemnation for those in Christ we know well the story of the prodigal in Luke 15 but So I just want to look at one verse there. Verse 20. We know the story of the son who's taken his inheritance and he squandered it. And he finally comes to his senses. And in verse 20, it says that he got up and he came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Just a couple of points to observe That the father was waiting. The father was eager to receive him. The father had forgiven him. It was already a fait accompli. It was a done deal. It was a finished act. The forgiveness from God for believers is comprehensive, without condemnation and complete. He also demonstrates his love to us by training us. Hebrews 12.6 says that whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And like you, I'm, I'm not all that excited about the discipline side. In fact, we end up being a little fearful of that, right? Oh gosh, if things go too well, I'm now in for a, a season of discipline. And um, I, I, you know, I worry about that. You guys probably do too. But uh, So I like it, it, a legitimate word for that is also to be trained, Whom the Lord loves, he trains. Okay, I'm better with that. I don't know why. It's the same thing. But he trains us, doesn't he? What's his purpose, though? Verse 10 says, He trains us that we might share in his holiness. To me, one of the most profound verses in all of Scripture is Hebrews 12.10. That God is willing to undertake the training process, the mentoring process, the teaching process of transforming us to the likeness of His son that we might share in his holiness. Richard Wormbrand in his book, In God's Underground, speaks to this. He uh, is in prison, and he has a discussion with Joseph, a uh, young man who is uh, very bitter. He has bone tuberculosis and uh, and face ulcers, uh, who later comes to Christ. But before that time, uh, Richard Wormbrand is speaking to him, and he says this. One day after our English lessons, I asked him, Why do you say that you hate God? Why, he echoed. You tell me first why God created the TB microbe. He thought that that would end the conversation. I can explain, I said, if you'll listen quietly. He replied woefully, I'll listen all night if you can do that. I warned him that I would keep him in his word. It was a problem, I said, which went to the root of human suffering and evil. Joseph was not the only one to ask why such things could happen under the eye of a merciful God. Probably all of us in prison had asked the same question, and there was not one answer, but several Firstly, we tend to confuse the unpleasant with the bad. Why is the wolf bad? Because it eats sheep, and this upsets me? I want to eat the sheep myself. And whereas the wolf must eat the sheep to live, I have no need to do so. I can eat other things. Worse still, the wolf has no duty towards the sheep, whereas I rear it all of its life, feed it, water it, and when it puts its full trust in me, I then cut its throat. No one thinks I'm bad. Joseph sat watching me, his head propped in his hands. It's the same with bacilli. One bacillus lives and makes dough ferment. Another bacillus lives and damages a child's lung. Neither germ knows what it does, but I approve one and condemn the other. So things are not good or bad in themselves. We label them according to what is convenient for us. We want the whole, uniform, we want the whole universe to conform to us and yet we're just an infinitesimal part of it. The cell was dark and unexpectedly quiet. Secondly, I said, what we call bad is often simply unfinished good. That'll take some proving, Joseph said, especially in my case. I said, you had a namesake 4,000 years ago who was sold into slavery by his brothers and suffered many other injustices in Egypt. Then he rose to prime minister, and so he was able to save the land and his own ungrateful brothers from a terrible famine. So until, like Joseph, you reach the end of the story, you can never know if what has happened so far will prove to be good or bad. When a painter starts a portrait, all you see is a blur of color. It takes time for the sitter to emerge. Everyone admires the portrait of the Mona Lisa, but it took Leonardo 40 years to complete it. The ascent of a mountain is hard going before you can enjoy the view from the summit. But the men who die here in prison, Joseph said, may never see the view. Yes, but on the other hand, a spell in jail may help them to the summit. Would comrade George Uge have come to power in Romania if he hadn't been in prison like us? And what about those who don't live to see freedom again? Lazarus died in poverty and sickness, I said. But Jesus tells us in a parable that the angels took him into eternal blessedness. After death, there comes to all of us a compensation. Only when we see the end of everything can we hope to understand Joseph promised to think about it. He later came to Christ. We too will one day see the end of everything. It's because of this, later in Hebrews, in that same chapter 12, that we're told to strengthen the weak hands, to strengthen the feeble knees, and to make our path straight. Last year, the, the Holberks and the Orbelinda Fire almost lost their house but for the grace of God and the heroics of some of the men in the body it was saved but in the San Diego fires prior to that their friends the Blanchards completely lost their house burned to the ground and yet their eyes were fixed on Jesus as they gathered family and friends and stood amidst the ashes and held a worship service They were less worried about their earthly castle because they knew that they were going to receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Because of that, they were able to show gratitude and offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. He trains us. He also matures us. Back in 1 John 4, one of the things He trains us Four, is that, we're, is that uh, He matures us. The idea in Scripture, the word often is perfected, at least in the New American Standard Version. Perfected meaning to mature, to make complete. And as He perfects us in His love, one of the things it does is give us confidence in the day of judgment. 1 John 4, 17 and 18. It says, By this love is perfected, matured, made complete in us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Uh, my wife Kathy had a, a dream uh, shortly after her brother-in-law passed away, who was a non-believer. And in that dream, it was the time of judgment. And she said it was, it was horrible. She said, in fact, it was so real, I, I'm not even positive it was a dream, but at, at any rate. Um, she said it was the day of judgment, and condemnation was being meted out to the non-believers. There was wailing and weeping, and she was on her knees, on her face, terrified. And an angel came and touched her on the shoulder and said, you don't have to be afraid. Jesus' blood has covered your sin. You're forgiven. And she woke up visibly shaken and yet recognized that by His love that we have confidence in the day of judgment It's the result of being perfected by Him. We also, in 1 John, a couple of verses earlier in verse 12, 1 John 4, we gain a love for the brethren. I, I love this body. We all have our differences. We all have our, our struggles. But it's been such a joy to be part of this body of believers. To rub shoulders, to learn, to hurt, to love. One of the results of being perfected by Him is love of the brethren. First John 4, 12 says, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Remember, we love because He first loved us. So as His love is perfected in us, then we love the brethren. Also, obedience is one of the results of being perfected in Him. 1 John 2.5 says, But whoever keeps His word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected, made complete. And later in 1 John 5, it says we keep His commandments and they're not burdensome to us. Only when the love of God is perfected do we not see the commandments of God as this this weight, this drudgery, this task, but rather because His love is perfected in us, we see it as a joy because we know it pleases Him. These are things that happen as He matures us and we're perfected in His love. There's a story in, in uh, Luke chapter 7. You don't need to turn to it. But uh, it's when Jesus was at the house of Simon, the Pharisee. And um, as he was there talking, a woman was uh, washing his feet with her tears. Jesus' feet with her tears. And uh, the Pharisee is watching this and he's thinking, what is going on if he only knew? And uh, interesting, Jesus sa- it says that Jesus answered Simon Well, Simon didn't really say anything, it was in his thoughts, but Jesus answered Simon and asked him a question and said, Simon, who is going to love more? There's a case where two people owed money, one owed $10,000, one owed $1,000, I'm taking a little liberty here with the story, and um, the person he owed graciously forgave them both, who's going to love him more? Well, Simon's a pretty bright guy, he says, well, the guy who owed the $10,000, Jesus said, that's right. Simon, you didn't offer me anything when I came in. And yet, this woman hasn't stopped since the, day I walked, the moment I walked in here, washing my feet, taking care of me, loving me. He said, he has been forgiven much, loves much. Brothers and sisters, we've been forgiven much. Because of that, We just want to consider these things carefully. The fact that in His love, He has chosen us. He continues to give to us. He's forgiven us. He trains us. And He's perfecting us in love. So what's our response? Our response is is to not let the difficulties of life, the trials that we undergo the relational issues that we struggle with, the circumstances that come our way, either self-induced or by happenstance. Not to let those things rule our life. We often say things that, uh, that aren't even scriptural. Um, Paul told Titus, he said, let the words of your mouth reflect sound doctrine. It's not sound doctrine when we say, Oh, gosh, you know, if I had no luck, I'd have. Uh, if I didn't have bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Or same day, different stuff. All these things actually are not sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is that we have a, a loving, knowing God who's forgiven us. The other thing is to keep our. Um, and, and we know that Paul had, and we have, plenty of these types of problems, don't we? But look at Romans 8. Paul went through a lot of problems. Relationally, circumstantially, physical difficulties. And yet, here's his response in chapter 8, verse 37. He says, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, she'll be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We respond by not allowing these things to take a chokehold on our life, by recognizing that in all these things we're conquerors, as we recognize not only God's sovereignty in our life, but His love in our life. By keeping our hope fixed on Jesus, Our love increases, and the natural outflow of that is a love for the brethren and a love for mankind. If you've strayed and you think, I'm so weary of coming back to God, seeking His forgiveness, come back. If you're a believer, you've been forgiven. And He is always, ever, the welcoming Father. If you've never experienced forgiveness in Christ, Let's talk. There's uh, myself and others will be up here after the, in the morning, this morning. And uh, we'd love to talk about the forgiveness, the complete comprehensive forgiveness that we have that frees us from condemnation. John, in the, uh, the last couple of verses, wraps up his letter by saying this. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God. This is eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the way that You have worked in our life, that You've brought us to Yourself, that You continue to work on our life to change us, to transform us into the image of Christ. Thank You for the promises of Scripture. Thank You that because of these we have a, a hope for things eternal. Father, we pray that You would, um, as we commit our lives to You, continue to mix these things we know to be true with faith, that we might walk in a manner pleasing to you in all respects. We commit ourselves to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this body. We thank you for what you continue to do in our lives as we uh, look forward to the hope of eternal life with you forever. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.